Much love to you all. Happy Father's Day, dads. And it's um, Juneteenth as well, so it's a Liberation Day as well. Very much needed to be recognized and honored, very, very much so. So, welcome to that. Uh, I did write something just in, um, however you do it, I always try and spend a little bit of time reflecting, thinking. Um, so I wanted to read just a little note that I put, this is for me, uh, reflecting on Father's Day, and only in a section. Uh, my, my dad passed away just before I turned four years old, so I have that side of things in which I experienced some things, and then... Um, then now experiencing it as a dad though, this is just kind of a reflection of what it's like for me as a dad. Uh, so I begin with, what is it like to be dad? Well, it's like watching my heart leave my, bot my body and explore this grand adventure we call life. It is exhilarating and terrifying. It is heart bursting and heartbreaking. It is all of this simultaneously. And having three sons means I have three very unique pieces of my heart experiencing this. I do not worry about my boys getting into the quote-unquote right schools, getting the right jobs, or how much those jobs will pay. For me, that is boring, static, and stale. It's simply not worth the worry. But I do hunger for them to hunger to care deeply about the things that matter most. I pray for their eyes to see, their ears to hear, and their hearts to break for the poor, the oppressed, the left out, and the looked down on. I pray they will care about justice, about their neighbor. I trust this is a divine hunger. I know the greatest barrier to all of this is distraction. Not being present to the presence which has been here the entire time, we were just distracted. Honestly, I'm not working on being a great dad. I'm working on being more present and less distracted. And if that rubs off, I'd be thrilled. A little reflection. Son, the other two are there. All right, uh, I'd love to say a word of prayer and we will um, jump in. Gracious God, I bless you for being a good, good father. I bless you for fathering us all into becoming new kinds of kids. Uh, to be your kids in this world uh, that is desperate for good news, that you would uh, speak into our lives, move in our lives, and live through us new, fresh expressions of love and grace and mercy uh, that will shake up our world, impact our world, and radically transform our, our world for you and by you. Uh, we bless you, God, for this opportunity to gather as your church is your family. Uh, we desire to hear from you, so my prayer now is that the meditation and posture of my heart 
and the words of my mouth will bring honor and glory to you and to you alone, my Lord, my rock, my Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's jump right in, shall we? Because we've, we've got a role. Uh, let's begin with this. According to United Nations Environmental Program, appro- approximately 1.9 billion trees are planted each year globally. This is where we begin. Even though it's the size of New Jersey, over a million, a million trees get, a year get planted in Israel with the most common purpose being to honor and memorialize ancestors. This is why they do it. And the why they do it is fascinating to me. Because planting trees begins here, today, now, breathing new life into our world now, and it will make a dramatic impact later following those who did the planting for the later generations. This is also why they do that. They do that knowing that when they plant a tree, it will be their grandkids and their grandkids' kids that will experience the most amount of impact by this. So now you're thinking, well, thanks, Mr. Science, but what does this have to do with Bible, Jesus, and our faith? And the answer is everything, absolutely everything. To begin, at least a third of Jesus' teachings are in the form of parables. In the majority of those, Jesus compares the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven using images, pictures, and metaphors of agriculture, as in seeds and planting. Why does Jesus do this? Why not state things in very clear bullet points? Why not hand them a business card with a single, defi- single sentence definition, here's what the kingdom of God is? And why talk about the kingdom of God as mystery rather than certainty? And then a question that often bubbles up when we use the language or the phrasing kingdom of heaven. Is Jesus talking about some other place at some other time? These are some questions that will take us into our giddy So first, we love to talk about Jesus, but how often do we talk about what Jesus talked about the most? Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than anything else. This was his message through and through and through. Kingdom of God, kingdom of God. Over 80 times in the four gospels, we hear kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. Matthew is the one who uses kingdom of heaven. But I would bet if you would ask 50, like, committed church attenders, what is the kingdom of God, I bet you would get dozens of different answers to that question. And applying the words used by Matthew then, kingdom of heaven, I would wager that the most common answer would be, well, it's some other place after death. First, Matthew, why does Matthew use kingdom of heaven and not kingdom of God? Well, it's because Matthew is writing to mostly a Jewish audience, so context matters. He does this because he uses heaven as a placeholder, if you will, for God, because the Jewish audience, they would not speak 
the word of God, the name God, if you will, the name Yahweh, they would not say these words out loud, so they substituted and said kingdom of heaven. They use heaven for God. They're interchangeable, if you will, but sometimes we, would, we don't get that. So that's why Matthew uses heaven rather than God. And secondly, I hope, well, and actually, too, by using God, why they would not speak the name, they would see that as blasphemous. For if you were with uh, us last week, so Marlene was just brilliant and fantastic and offers such a gift within her teaching and talked about the whole idea of blaspheming and all of that. Well, that would be to them using the name of God would be something they would consider blasphemous. So secondly, though, I hope you have a bit of curiosity for why does Jesus talk about the kingdom of God more than anything else? So I'm going to start by tying some clouds together then as we go, or better said, tie some trees together. Maybe we should. Um, so we'll be walking, moving into our next section in the Gospel of Matthew as we're spending all of 2022 walking through the Gospel according to Matthew. And so we're going to continue on where we were in that. Um, and we're going to be in Matthew then this morning, chapter 13. So we're kicking off Matthew chapter 13. We've made it this far. Uh, so verses 1 and 2 in, a little, in the first half of 3, and then we'll uh, get rolling. That same day... Jesus is in uh, the Galilee region, specifically at this point, he would be in uh, Kafar Nahum, or we say Capernaum, uh, Kafar Nahum. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables. So a scene, maybe we use this painting to give us an idea of what it would be. Jesus gets in a boat, backs up, and then the people are on the shore. And you, when you're in the Galilee region, you could sit on a boat like that and be offshore, back up, and when you speak, it amplifies. And you would be able to hear it as if you had a microphone. It's fascinating how the lake sits so low with the mountains on it, and it, it does some different things with that. So we have this look. Um, then, just to give you an idea of the boat, this is a boat that they discovered in 1986 on the northwest shore of the Galilee. It's a first century, time of Jesus, if you will, first century fishing boat that they discovered in the mud uh, digging. And so next picture, uh, to give you an idea, and it's really, I mean, we go into the archaeology of it and how they found it and how they had to keep it because it's wood from being just exposed. It, actually, the environment there the way it was, kept that thing from, being wood, you would think it would just rot away and it would go, but it didn't because it was buried in the ground. So when they actually uncovered it, they had to do all kinds of things to keep it wet and to keep the wood from rotting and just disintegrating. And so it's fascinating, but they have it in a museum there. It's really cool to see, but it gives you an idea. Well, yeah, this is what a boat looked like. Uh, and then uh, another picture. This is uh, me taking a picture sitting in Capernaum on the shore, and we spent some time reflecting. And so just looking out and picturing, okay, this is the scene. And then uh, the next picture, this is uh, Jeremy Cruz, Pastor Jeremy, um, teaching in Kafar uh, Nahum as we sat around and we took in a teaching. And notice how just engaged everyone is and taking notes. It was lovely. <laughs> But Jeremy is teaching, and you get this idea of gathering around 
the lake of Galilee or the Sea of Galilee as we know it, and taking in Jesus, riffing, saying these parables, teaching in parables, to which over the next few weeks we're going to dig in and we're going to study through a number of these parables. But this morning what we're going to do is we're going to ask the question, lean into why. Why would you teach and speak in parables? So verse 10, then we jump to and we get the disciples asking this question. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? Anybody ask that question? Good heavens, why do this? Bullet points, man, just write it, like make it easy. He replied, because the knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Interesting language, and we have to highlight the word knowledge here, which in the Greek is the word gnosko. Go ahead and say gnosko. And the, the Hebrew is yeda. Go ahead and say yeda. One of my favorite words, if not my favorite, it's to know through experience, experiential knowing, and it's a Jewish idiom for sexual intercourse. It's an idiom they would use. So the first time it's used in the scriptures, it says Adam, yada, but you'll read it. It said Adam knew Eve and she bore Cain. Oh, that's a bit different kind of knowing. Adam did not take a 10-question quiz about Eve. He got nine right. She got pregnant. It was unbelievable because he knew her and she got pregnant. Uh, you can talk about that later, moms and dads. Um, <laughs> but this is a very, very, very interesting, but the knowledge, the knowing, the experiential kind of Knowing matters. It isn't just a head knowledge. It's a different kind of knowing. Like I know it and I can tell stories about it from my life. And then uh, mysterion is mystery. And it's a hidden or secret thing. And this particular thing, what he's getting at is it's not obvious to the understanding. It's not that Jesus doesn't want them to know, it's that he's trying to draw it out of them. Because it's not just, well, I'll just tell it really simply and then we're all set. I want to draw that out of your heart, so I'm going to do it in a different way. So I'd say it like this, Jesus tells parables as an invitation for all those listening to experience the mysteries and depth of life. Parables are a form of communication that go around the head in order to awaken the heart. That's like a paraphrase of Dallas Willard, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But it's to go around the head and draw out impact, awaken the heart. That's why. And in the gospel according to Luke, in chapter 17, we get this. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees, the religious elite, when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Is that how you explain it to people? Is that how you describe it to people? It's happening within and amongst and through us. So Jesus is not asking them to read a book or travel to a specific place and then you'll know what the kingdom of God is because the kingdom is among you and within you. It's an experience to be had for those 
who have eyes to see and ears to hear, Jesus says. To which Jesus follows this up with, verse 12 through 17, whoever has, who gets it, will be given more. They will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This, Jesus says, is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their ears, see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Excellent. All cleared up, right? That's just clear as can be. The crowd's ancestors had eyes, ears, and hearts, but they did not see, hear, or understand at the deeper level. Yet Jesus' disciples are blessed because they're tuned in to the mysteries of this kingdom. The idea of seeing and hearing beyond the literal is not a new thing, but it is certainly something we need to recapture in our world today. I am grateful, I'm grateful and I'm also fascinated by the fact that someone on our Israel trip, I don't know who, this is, we, we have a Google Drive in which everyone from our trip has been uploading pictures to them. So you don't necessarily know who took them, but someone took a picture of me sitting by the Sea of Galilee. This is in Capernaum. And we took some time to reflect. We gave them, it was less than a half hour. We, we just said, let's going to take some time after a show and have some time for processing and just reflecting on what we've been seeing and hearing and experiencing. And I was just sitting there and I was writing down what I was hearing, what I was seeing, and what I was experiencing. And someone took a picture of me, which I find fascinating because there is something about that I'm guessing is like, that is me to, to sit, be still, be, reflect, absorb, understand, lock in, think, think some more, wonder, right? Is this common? You know how many times when I said, yeah, and it's in me, here in my morning routine, and I'll spend, and I'll spend some time reading, and I'll spend some time, to, and how many times when I say, you know, I'll spend some time just um, in contemplation, meditation, prayer, writing, journaling, and then I'll read a little, and people will go, well, that must be nice. And I go, it is, you should do it. Well, and what? Choices, choices, choices. We can all make some choices, but the idea of sitting, being, and taking in is not apparently all that normal, as I come to learn, I guess, that people think. So this actually means a lot to me because this picture, I keep this picture because it's a reminder to me to 
be in this place, wherever that place may be, of listening, of seeing, of hearing, of understanding, hopefully, prayerfully. In this space, in Kfar Nahum, we gave less than a half hour, right? It was less than a half hour we had in this space, and quickly within our group, just to sit, all of a sudden, though, I notice as I look around, though, too, there were a number of people started to weep, cry. One guy started to shake, tremble, and do the ugly cry. Literally, one of our other pastors came and comforted him as he was like falling apart. Why? Listening, sitting. And because we're literally, like, we were like, are you, you know, what, what's going on? He's like, just taking the time to hear undid him. The most often, the most repeated request on this side of our trip, they said, if there's, was there anything we could do differently to make the trip better? People said wonderful things, but what they did say, the one thing, more time for reflection and processing from what we had seen, heard, and experienced. If we could have a little more time just to reflect on that. To see beyond seeing and hear beyond hearing in order to have hearts to understand leads Jesus to invite his students to pay deep attention. To move beyond the simple to the depth found in the reflection and nuance of life. And to help people do this, Jesus uses parables as his main form of teaching. Parables are playmates with something that uh, I've talked about a, a bit around here, midrash. Midrash, the root is derash in the Hebrew, which means to inquire, to investigate, and to study. To midrash on something is to take something and then you begin to talk all around it and about it to help people understand that thing that you have learned or you said and you go, well, let me fill in the gaps. The way the rabbis see it is they say the scriptures, there is the ink on the page and there is the white that is all around it. That white is for midrash. It's for reflecting and writing and thinking, what, does this, what is it doing? What's it mean? How is it moving in me? Midrash is that, and it's a playmate with parables, which is this invitation to further inquiry, to dig and to wrestle. So through teaching and parables, Jesus is looking for students who will inquire, who will ask questions, who will study, and who will dig into that which he is handing them. Imagine, now just work with me here and imagine if you had a society that moved in perpetual hurry, trying to do all the things, while hoping life will just hand out a bullet point certitude. That might lead to a society that lives on the surface, and it could lead to a church that does not develop disciples, students, who have eyes to see and ears to hear the kingdom of God, which is as close as our very breath. Jesus, in this specific passage about parables, is teasing out the prophet Isaiah who will speak about trees of old being cut down to their stumps so that new trees can begin to grow. 
Isaiah chapter 10, this is what Jesus is referring to, some of these things which he just hints at, and they would know to go to the, the prophet and read through, think through. They'd likely a number of them haven't memorized, but he's referring to this. The lofty trees, Isaiah says, will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down, he, the Messiah, will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Now, this one will sound familiar for maybe Christmas time. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of the knowledge. What is that? Yeda. Oh, that's great. Yet the spirit of Yeda and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Uh, real quick as an aside, a branch, where it said in there, there's in a branch and it was capitalized, that word in Hebrew, the word branch, is the word Yetzer. Go ahead and say Yetzer. Yetzer. Why this is fascinating, because we often read this at Christmas time, there will be a branch that comes up from the line of uh, Jesse. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus will be called a Nazarene, right? Oh, he's from Nazareth, so we'll call him a Nazarene because he's from Nazareth. We're like, well, that seems obvious. But that phrase, to call someone a Nazarene, to say that the way they would say it about Jesus, oh, he's a Nazarene. The word Nazareth is a Greek word. And guess what the root is in Hebrew? Natser branch. He's a branch is what they called him. So it wasn't like, oh, he's from there. They're saying, no, 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 no. We're saying he's that. So it was like a whoa kind of thing when they're like, no, no, no. They're not calling him a, hey, he's a walker alien. What would be the walk? I don't know. Whatever that is. But in, <laughs> it's really stupid. Um, so, we'll keep going with the smart things the Bible says. Um, so, we get the yada, and then we move on. So, the yada and fear of the Lord, and he will delight with that. He will not judge, I love this, by what he sees with his eyes, or decide by what he hears with his ears. No, we're going to the depth. But with mercy, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Jesus is using remez. Remez is hint. Hint is what that means, and it's always referring back. He's using some words to hint back to the Hebrew scriptures and taking and asking his listeners to recall the prophet Isaiah speaking of how the divine would cut and prune until there is new life found in a new sprout or a branch that grew out of this, the remaining stump of old. Also a part of this reference is Isaiah 6, 9 through 13. He's getting at this, and we'll obviously see it like the duh when we get going. He said, go and tell this people. Isaiah is saying this, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. This people's heart has become calloused. Think distracted. This people's heart has become distracted, calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn. Now, ready? That word turn is the word shuv in Hebrew. Go ahead and say shuv. 
It's where we get the word teshuva, which is the word repent, which means to turn or return. All he's saying here is if you get it, if you understand it, then you would turn or return to the path in which you started with the divine. You would turn or return to the divine and be healed. That word is rafah, which means to make full of health. When you get it, you will turn or return to God and be made full of health. Hooey. And that's what he wants. But we've got to see beyond just with our eyes and hear beyond with just our ears so that we can understand with our hearts. Then I said, he keeps going, for how long, Lord? And he answered, and this is fascinating, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. This being described as the exile in Babylon. How, how long are these people not going to get it? Well, until they're even taken away into a foreign land, Babylon, and everything is left barren. Then he says, uh, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the what? Holy seed will be the stump in the land. Again, Isaiah saying the holy seed, he's talking Messiah will come from the old stump that's left behind. The Messiah, the seed will come out of that. It's in just a few words, Jesus sends his listeners to forage through the words of the great prophet Isaiah, digging and mining the depth and the goodness. He uses language of agriculture, specifically of planting, cultivating, cutting, and pruning trees to highlight a future fruit-producing tree. Jesus mirrors the prophets in speaking about the metaphor of waking up to plant trees now while also looking forward to the fruit they will produce later. This is the language. Jesus is saying those of old, the prophets, were planting seeds by what they were doing for the kingdom of heaven. They were planting seeds of the kingdom of heaven. And these rather immature disciples of Jesus now, kids, who are following Jesus, are blessed to see and harvest the fruit of the trees planted hundreds of years before them. Which is a way of saying the kingdom of heaven is here now for this mishmash group of uh, known as disciples or students of Jesus and the work that they will do in following will plant till for future generations to come. Which is to say, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is both now and later. So the kingdom of God is like candy. Now and later. Anyone remember this fantastic, lovely candy, now and laters? Why do they call them now and laters? Because you put it in your mouth and you're like, that lovely fruitiness is good. And those suckers lodge onto your teeth and they get stuck there. And then an hour later, you're like, hey, hey say, I had an apple one about an hour ago. And it's on there. And in fact, it took my filling with it. 
Good heavens. So it's now and later, but that's the point. These things are meant to like have them now and you go, I enjoy it, but there's more to come. It's not done yet. I get a taste of it now and later. Now and later. Look at this. We're taking a chance here. Putting an eye out. Now and later. Now and later. Now, maybe some of you will get some now, and others will have to wait until later. How about that? Fantastic. Yeah, it, it is that. Because here's the thing, when we hear church people, we might hear church people speak of the kingdom, right? People they say, oh, the kingdom. We're being kingdom people. I'm doing kingdom work. It begins in the now to fill to the full later. We're starting something. We're beginning something. We're stepping into something now, but we also know that it won't be filled to the full until later. And a quick Quick word on the language of kingdom, because most of us do not ride around on our horses in Camelot and inquire of King Arthur, I don't think, right? This is language used by church people for Bible speak, like we do this kingdom things. So we should get at, like, well, what exactly kingdom, what does that mean, kingdom? My favorite definition is by the late philosopher and scholar Dallas Willard. Uh, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, he said this, God's own kingdom or rule is the range of his effective will where what he wants done is done. The person of God himself and the action of his will are the organizing principles of his kingdom, but everything that obeys those principles, whether by nature or by choice, is within his kingdom, is within that rule. This kingdom is among us and is accessible now. And here's what I love. So he gives this definition, which I'm like, ah, oh, it's beautiful, great, great, great. And as soon as he gets done, he then illustrates it by, tell, by giving a metaphor through story. Because if you're trying to get at this thing, what's he got? Well, we got to tell a story. Got to give a metaphor, almost like a parable. And he says this, imagine you visit someone's rather large home and you have gathered in their living room. Then the host says, hey, come down the hall and turn into the dining room as a great feast has been prepared and is ready. To be within earshot, to listen and to follow is the effective will of God. You're hearing it. You're walking in it. I'm, I'm responding to it. That is the, he's understanding the kingdom of God is among you. You're picking up on it. You're following. You're listening. You're walking into it. Then he uh, finishes this. There is no suggestion in scripture that the kingdom hasn't happened yet. Where God's will is being accomplished, the kingdom of God is right beside us. It is indeed the kingdom among us and within us. Christ invites us to take part in it now as partners with God in the divine conspiracy. Ooh, come on, Dallas. So that is to say the kingdom of God is present and available now, and through seeing, hearing, and participating in it, we are also planting seeds for future generations, kind of like planting trees. 
This is a brilliant word spoken by Jesus while also highlighting how their ancestors had ears but did not hear. They had eyes but they did not see. And now he is saying that that heartbreaking pattern is continuing in the religious among him. He's saying, oh, that pattern, so heartbreaking and sad that I don't want. They, they can see, they can hear, but they can't see and they can't hear because it's not getting to their heart. But this motley crew, known as Jesus' disciples, are choosing to follow in it, to listen, to obey. So Jesus is using the art of parable to announce how the aforementioned planting of the prophets is now ready for harvest. Here's the real bugger. It's arriving, it says in this passage, with both mercy and judgment. The judgment being that some looking on will not see and those within earshot will not listen. They will not hear. That's the judgment. You're not getting it. The kingdom has arrived. It's present, yet it's not being experienced. Yeda. Another kicker. Who are the ones that don't hear and don't see? It's largely the religious folk who are missing it because they're blinded by their own ideas of what they think the kingdom is like. That's a toss back to Marlene last week. When we get locked in and we go, the kingdom is like this and only this. It it has to happen this way. And then Jesus is like, well, it's sprouting up here. It's happening in these ways. And they're like, Nope, then I guess that's of the devil. And Jesus is like, oh boy, you went there, huh? That's a problem. I wonder how many of us at some point in our lives have pleaded, desired, or hungered for God to speak. But I also wonder how many of us wanted or expected that it would be loud. Bullet point statements or a really clear directive What we have here is God moving and acting, but rather than a bullet point directive, Jesus speaks in parables and poses a question in order to gauge, well, who is seeing and who is actually listening and who then is willing to respond? And when he gets into this, who's seeing, who's hearing, and who's going to respond? Who would respond? This is a remez, a hint, a throwback again to... Isaiah, but specifically Isaiah's calling. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, it says this. Then Isaiah said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? So it's easy for us, we read, oh, I saw and I heard, and we assume, oh, it's literal seeing and hearing. But the prophets often speak of visions and dreams which are all rooted in the deeper imagination. The divine speaking is found in people paying heart attention. Leading Isaiah to respond using very specific language. He says this, And I said, Here I am. Send me. Now, that phrase, here I am, in the Hebrew is another one of my favorites. Hineni. Go ahead and say Hineni. Hineni. Hineni means fully present, alert, seeing. So it's not just, oh, here I am. It's, 
I am locked in. I am in this moment. I am with you. I see you. I hear you. I understand. I am here and I am listening and I am ready to go. Hineni is giddy up. Now I, I'm here and I'm listening and I'm ready. And here's the thing that I find so fascinating. Notice that Isaiah seems to understand, Isaiah understands that mystery then is not unknowable. He understands that mystery, mystery is endlessly knowable. We often go, mystery, oh, you don't know it. No, no, no. Mystery in the scriptures means it's endlessly knowable, which means begin in it and start going, and you'll find that it keeps getting bigger and bigger and wider and wider and deeper and deeper and more and more meaningful, beautiful, and impactful. Isaiah gets this. But in our modern post-enlightenment thinking, we often expect, well, give it to me, bullet point certainty. Here we go. Which can actually function as a barrier when it comes to nuance and depth. Who has time and fortitude to think and dig and study and live out heaven in the here and now while simultaneously holding in our heart hope for the restoration of all things. Which takes to two things. Two, I think, really big barriers for us seeing, hearing, understanding, and responding to Jesus' invitation to participate in the kingdom of heaven. For some of us, the biggest barrier is now. The day-to-day -day realities of life. We have to do the work of seeing, hearing, and understanding in the midst of an awful lot of noise and distraction. It's not easy, is it? Everything seems to be swirling. The calendar screams at us. Next, next, next. And so actually the biggest barrier is trying to listen and hear and see and understand in the midst of a society that is really loud. For others... The barrier is the idea of a heaven that is located someplace else later. The idea that the kingdom only comes after we die. So our hope is only for then and there, and we actually miss here and now. Both of these can lead to a small or dualistic view of life. Well, it's either this or that which can lead to a posture of putting up with life. And then what ends up happening usually with putting up with life is putting up with people. Or worse than demanding the removal of other people. So then life can be somewhat bearable until one glad morning I'll fly away. An example of how that theology is revealed today People viewing church as something to attend rather than a people and a way of being in the world. A kingdom only as a place can lead to a church only as a place. A kingdom as participation in leads to a church who lives as good news in our world. Do you see that difference? Can you hear that difference? Will we understand that? 
a really helpful question can be in all of the parables, in all of the times that Jesus is teaching and talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, who is he talking to and when is he talking about? Because Jesus is not talking about a membership card that will have people transported to some other place, some other after-death day. He is talking about having a transformed heart so that people will live the kingdom of heaven now until the fullness of heaven is consummated later. An I'll fly away attitude, if that's somebody's favorite hymn, sorry, uh, an I'll fly away attitude when held up to the scripture would have us passing God on the heavenly escalator as he comes to make all things new and we're going someplace else. That's paraphrasing John in Revelation where he says God comes to make all things new. It, it is the restoration of all things. And by the way, making all things new, new heaven and a new earth, it's so important. That word new is better translated renew because new is qualitative, not quantitative. It's not another, it's renewed. That's really helpful. Or to paraphrase the Apostle Paul in Philippians, Ephesians, and Galatians, being a citizen of heaven, I think I put this one up, being a citizen of heaven, this is a paraphrase for me, is not determined by where you are, but rather who you are and how you are. It's less a destination and more about participation. That's being a citizen of the kingdom of God. The invitation is to respond to the divine with Hineni. To be fully present in the now while also holding heart, hope within our hearts for later. To me, a great practice for this is the Eucharist, is communion, the Lord's Supper. Because it's a symbol, it's a picture, it's a practice of Jesus pronouncing how his life, very life, and death inaugurated the kingdom in the now with the consummation and full celebration later. So we, we remember this act through the act of coming up and receiving, then we emulate it and enact it, or reenact it, if you will, by going and giving. Giving an attentive ear and heart to someone who is currently struggling giving a meal to someone who is lonely and hungry. It, it looks all sorts of ways. It's being attentive to those around you and giving what needs to be given. Walking in the kingdom of God has all sorts of things. It's being a neighbor to the one who is not a good neighbor to you. But it's saying, no, no, be a good neighbor. It can look like listening and just being there with someone. It could mean packing up everything you have and moving to another state to walk in the kingdom of God. It might be just packing up some food and bringing it to someone who is hungry. It has all sorts of ways in which we can participate. It's 
When we receive and embrace the forgiveness that has been offered to every single one of us by God, it frees our heart then in turn to give forgiveness to those who have wounded our heart. That's a practice of the Eucharist. I receive the forgiveness offered to me and I in turn offer that forgiveness even to the ones who treat my heart like a pinata. I will forgive you because that sets my heart free. As Jesus broke himself open and poured himself out, we receive the profound love through the bread and the cup. And then we break ourselves open and pour ourselves out for a fractured and hurting world that desperately needs grace and good news poured into it. Welcome to the kingdom of God now. We'll create some space and we'll invite you as you feel led to come and we will have a wafer, some bread, in a cup. And you'll hear words, something along the lines of this spread. This is a picture of Jesus' body, his life that he lived and then he gave and for you and I. And then the cup represents his blood poured out for our healing and restoration you'll hear some of those words that you would take, you reflect, and I'll have space to just go, I bless you, God. And I receive, I say yes. It's a way, the Eucharist is a way of hineni, hineni, hineni. Here I am, fully alert, fully attentive. What more do you have, God? I giddy up. Gracious God, I bless you for your love, your grace, and your mercy that meets us right where we are, as we are. You meet us here, now. Your love is available. Your forgiveness has been offered and will be continued to be offered over and over and over again for us to receive and embrace. And we bless you, God, for that, that it is offered to all of us, each one of us, that we would receive, that we would say, Hineni, here I am. And then we would walk with our very lives, God, that you would empower us, strengthen us, call us forward, that we would walk in your ways, that is walk in your kingdom now, that others may experience it. They would see it with their eyes, hear it with their ears, and experience it with their hearts to understand your love, your grace, your mercy, your compassion, your healing to the whole of health to the fullness of putting us back together. We bless you, God, for this invitation, this endless invitation to walk with you. May we respond even now in the grace and peace we pray in the name of Christ. 
Amen.